Hey, David. Hey, Jay. We've been getting some letters in from uh, listeners, which is great. And uh, listener... Letters? Well, emails. Emails. What are you going to call them? (laughs) I'd like to receive an actual physical letter. (laughs) That would be really cool. Don't I long for the day of real uh, physical mail. So a listener named Dan from Milwaukee um, sent in a link with uh, some information about the history of the picks. And I thought that was interesting. I read through that. Um, And I thought it might be cool to do a little show where we talk about the history of the picks and especially from the perspective of the TAC because we've been supporting this thing for a long time. Yeah, and I emailed Dan because he suggested that we actually do an episode on it. And I said, who really wants to hear about the history of the picks? And he's like, I bet there are thousands of listeners that would want to hear about the history of the picks. And so, Dan, this one's for you. (laughs) This one's for you, Dan. Um, But it, it is an interesting history, and it goes back quite a ways. And I think understanding how it came, it went from a little two-interface firewall, you know, thing way back in the day to the where, where we are now is qu- quite an interesting tale. Yeah, it is. Um, too bad we don't have any music that we can play in. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Right, we can. Hold on. <laughs> okay, just play it. All right, go oh. for it. Yeah, so the, the history of the PICS and why the PICS is important, too, I think we should say, is because the ASA that we know today really came from the picks, um, had the main underpinnings and everything from the picks. Now, obviously, it's evolved some, but, you know, there's some fundamental things and characteristics about the ASA that sometimes people scratch their heads and say, why is it like that? Well, if you understand the history, you start to, you know, understand that. So let's back up in time a little bit, and you got to go all the way back to 1994, which is when the uh, original picks was actually invented uh, by a group of three guys, uh, Brantley Coley, uh, John Mays, and uh, Johnson Wu. And uh, they started uh, coding in about April of 1994 and founded this company called Mesa Networks um, in August, and they created the IP Passport Box. What were they going for? I mean, what was the point? So at that time, you know, companies were just getting on the Internet, and uh, they wanted a way of actually natting devices, so multiple devices to, to get out. They wanted a way of natting them to a public address. And so... The whole story of the picks is really just about a nat, nat box. Nat, nat box. Okay. Yeah, just a, a small nat box. Um, and anyway, they created this capability in this box, and companies started wanting to buy it. And so they were talking about it with their lawyer. They said, hey, you know, we got to figure out, you know, what we should do and, you know, how to progress forward to be more of a legitimate um, company as we're expanding. And their lawyer's like, well, tell me about what this box does. And, you know, they started describing it. He said, well, that really sounds like a private Internet exchange. And if you look at private Internet exchange – the acronym for that is PICS. And P-I-X. So that's actually how the, uh, the name PICS got started. Uh, Cisco actually purchased uh, PICS in about fall of 1995, so around November, I think. We, we actually acquired it. Our CTO at the time uh, offered to buy the company, which was then Network Translation, Inc. Um, and, uh, you know, we purchased it, and we started uh, building boxes from it. I guess the, the fact the company was named Network Translation, Inc. really speaks to what it the, the selling point of the yeah. thing. Now, interestingly enough, the original picks also um, spawned off a few other products. So the local director, if anyone remembers, as well as the cache engine. So the local director was a device that um, distributed incoming network connections to a bunch of different internal servers. Um, and the cache engine cached, you know, servers, web pages and stuff. Um, you know, one of like the content engines today. Um, and so we actually had two other products that were based on the same fundamental code base and use the same chassis. I remember when I first started supporting the PICs, uh, you know, many years ago in the TAC, 
I remember searching for some error messages that I was seeing on the console, and I kept coming up with, in our support library, I kept coming up with local director cases on this local director product, and I didn't know what it was, but I mean, that makes sense, because if both, both you know, products were made by the same company, I guess they had a common code base. Yeah, and that was once I came over to Cisco, but um, yeah, same common source um, code base originally, right, and same hardware platform as well. Um, and as Jay said, you know, the PIX was originally designed to be a NAT box, and it only supported two interfaces. So we had, um, based on the order they were in the box, we had an inside and outside interface, and they had security levels, um, 0 and 100, and those all those were hard-coded. So you couldn't change interface names, um, and you couldn't change security levels. And actually that, um, you know, the changing of the interface names, actually we weren't allowed to, or we didn't have the capability of changing that until all the way to PIX 5.2 code. So when Cisco acquired the company, um, the first release was really version 2.5, um, and we rapidly jumped into the, the 3.1 release and then the 4.x, you know, um, 4.1, 2, 3, and 4.4 releases where that was really a large stable of, um, you know, where the customer base was at the time and for many years uh, before bringing up the 5.x release. And at this at this point, we're, for the hardware, we're just talking about the PIX Classic. Is that well, right? No, at that time we had the Classic was the original, and then we came out with a PIX 10,000 and, and uh, then a PIX 510 and a PIX 520. And all those were really based on common PC motherboards and yeah. platforms, right? So, um, you know, they weren't really any custom hardware per se that, that Cisco made. Uh, but what was interesting is uh, some of the first boxes, the 10,000, 510, and I think it was ended at the 510, they actually had faceplates on them on the front with a key that you had to unlock, yeah. which dropped down the door, which allowed you to access the floppy disk drive. It has a three-and-a-half-inch floppy. That's right, a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk drive, which is how you loaded the software nice. and how you upgraded the software on the box. You put the disk in, the floppy disk, and rebooted the box, and it read the disk, and that's how you got your software. And all was good and well. And there was no onboard flash? Uh, there was onboard flash. Oh, okay. Yes. So it read the software and copied it to the onboard flash, which was originally um, 256K. Right? Pretty and good. we upgraded to 512 and 2 megs and then 8 megs and then 16 megs. Um, but uh, what was interesting is once we released, I think it was around version 5.0, oh, 5.1, 5, 5 um, the PIX image size got larger than 1.44 megabytes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At which time we had a problem because Ruh -roh. then we couldn't put the image on the floppy disk to copy it over. So that's actually why we had to invent the copy TFTB flash command to allow us to copy the image over. But that wasn't in the image, so we had to come up with a new way, which we created a boot helper file, which was really like a small image which had the copy TFTB flash capability in it. So you copied a boot helper file to the floppy the disk. The floppy disk. Put the Booted floppy disk up. in, booted that up, which was like your ROM on with copy TFTB flash. And then you could copy actual image over so that way it kind of bypassed the floppy disk restriction wow okay another really interesting point is that uh, there was no access list back then yeah so to permit traffic inbound you actually use these commands called conduits yeah and that would permit traffic inbound and then to restrict traffic outbound used these commands called outbound <laughs> so and you applied outbound so you had an outbound command which restrict access and then you actually applied it with an apply command which was like your access list, access group, except it was very unusual because with the, with the outbounds also could have accept statements and they were 
negative inverses of the actual outcome, right. which is really complicated. I've taken for two cases. I've taken two cases in my history at Cisco, and I remember, uh, you know, on this version, this old version, and I remember seeing that config and just freezing. And I and I had to go over <laughs> to you, and I'm like, what the heck is this? I mean, I, it just broke my brain. The paradigm didn't match, yeah. right? It, it, it was funny. The other, the other interesting parts about the picks back in the old days was we supported other types of interfaces besides Ethernet. So we supported Token Ring, and we supported FIDI, or FTDI. So I actually had some TAC cases on FIDI and Token wow. Ring back in the old days that uh, we had to learn to troubleshoot, you know, what was going on in the rings and why packets weren't passing. But in general, there, you know, there really wasn't much difference in the interface mm -hmm. type from a PIX perspective. It's just a driver difference, I guess. Yeah, yep. mainly yeah. just a driver difference. So this thing is called the Private Internet Exchange, and a big part of the PIX is the VPN capability. So that must have come into play pretty early on. I mean, what's the history of the VPN getting added? Yeah, so back then, VPNs as we know them today didn't exist, right? There was actually no standard um, for VPN. IPsec didn't exist hmm. back then, right? Um, and so we actually, the PICS actually implemented some of the first VPNs, um, which were called private links. Um, and it was very simplistic. So you had a link command um, and a route link command. Um, and the link command just specified a peer IP and a shared secret. And it actually did use um, DES encryption, but it had to have a separate physical card. So you installed a card in the PICS, which offloaded the encryption. Um, and it, you know, provided this special um, method of tunneling between two devices and encrypting it in DES, right? So Just we had with a, some shared key. Yep, with a shared yeah. secret key. Um, so we had private link, and uh, there was a private link to card, which was a replacement for that. And then after that, we came up with um, IPsec and 5.1. Um, and 5.1 and later versions had IPsec, where we implemented IPsec as the standard going forward. So at this point, uh, these firewalls, we'll call them firewalls, um, have two interfaces, right, inside and outside. And since at first we started off with just having two interfaces, you would apply a route to one of those interfaces. That's how you got the route on the box. So you'd use the route and then the interface, name if, and then the network and the next hop. Yeah, that's it. Um, you know, if something came in one interface, then obviously it was going to go out the other interface. So the routing was interface specific. It wasn't a global routing table. Um, and actually, there's a lot of underpinnings today where that's still true. Um, we do have a converged global routing table today, but it's still a per-interface routing table, even in the ASA code um, today, which is why, you know, um, when packets match globals and statics, right, we'll, we'll translate it first um, and send it to the interface specified by the NAT command, but then we do a routing lookup for the routes out that one interface, right? It's interface-specific routing at that point. And there's definitely some benefits and drawbacks to that, but, I mean, one of the nice things is it makes, um, you know, handling overlapping networks very easy. If the 10 network is on both sides of the firewall, then you can have a route to the 10 network on both sides of the firewall. You know, it, it, it does facilitate some things that are, that are handy in a pinch. Yeah, and, you know, talking about routing, too, back in the original PICS days, you know, the classic through, like, the 10,000, um, we actually sold a router that would fit inside the PICS really? called the Access Pro Router. I have never heard of this. It's a router on a car. <laughs> you were making was a, this up. I'm not. It's a, it's a 2500 that ran iOS 10.0 on a card. And if you have an old PICS version of code, you can actually type the session command, and that's how you access the console of the router. Wow. Did you trouble? Did you support this? I, I've product? never had a case on that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I have heard of a customer that had a case, but I've, I've never seen that. That is fascinating. Weird. So, yeah. So we embedded some routing in the PICS itself. 
here in the TAC, we, you know, take a little bit of pride in, in seeing how long our products last, um, you know, what the quality is of them and stuff like that. And, you know, I actually save occasionally when we are on customer boxes and we do a chauffeur and it tells us the uptime. So I kind of save um, some of those long uptimes. And I have a, a snippet here from a customer's box that was uh, a PIX. And it was running for nine years and 26 days without rebooting. And it was not in failover. And it was running version 5.1 of software. That's not only a testament to the hardware and the you know software quality of the device, but also the power infrastructure <laughs> say that. and like <laughs> natural disaster preparedness of this company or city or whatever. There you go. I mean, there's often an, uh, you know, a story in the tech where uh, we've had a customer who's there was it was a switch and uh, they couldn't locate it. They could find it in their network management app, but they can never locate it. And they spent all these weeks trying to figure out where this switch was. And uh, they finally sent some people to try to locate this by tracing physical cabling. And they found the cabling went through a wall that they couldn't figure out where it came out of. Like into a wall? Into a wall. Nice. And so they got so interested in where this thing went that the story is that the customer actually cut through the wall and found that someone had put, um, you know, the drywall or (laughs) sheetrock over the switch and the switch had just been running there for years but it was actually behind the sheetrock you know in the wall just running that's pretty good so uh pix version 6.x what are some other features that it brought to the pix platform yeah i think um you know some interesting ones is uh pix device manager which is a predecessor to uh, asa device manager Ah, the gui yes asdm that actually didn't come along until uh pix version 6.0 so prior to PIX version 6.0, we really didn't have uh, an individual GUI manager other than we did have a product called Cisco Security Policy Manager, which is CSPM, which is really a multi-device manager. Um, but that was really, you know, the invention of PDM came in version 6.0. Um, additionally, some of the other things that people might be familiar with is packet capture, right? So that came in um, 6.2, right? the capability of, pack, of capturing packets, things like object groups, uh, bidirectional NAT, that also came in uh, PIX version 6.2, as well as land-based failover um, came in 6.2. Prior to that, we only had serial-based failover. I tell you, when I first started taking cases and you'd get on a version, you know, PIX version 5 or early version 6 before the packet capture, that was a scary, that was a scary troubleshooting session, man. Without having all the tools in your tool bag, you just felt helpless sometimes trying to troubleshoot problems. Yeah, we had the debug packet command back then, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, couldn't export anywhere. So... I think if, if we're going to talk about the history of the PIX and how it became, went from the version 6 to version 7 and the beginning of the ASA, we have to talk about the FWSM. So how, you know, the FWSM code base, obviously, when you're running the commands, a lot of the commands are similar to the PIX. So tell us about how the FWSM got started. Where did it come from? Yeah, the FWSM code actually was ported from PIX 601. So they pulled the 601 code base to develop the FWSM code. Um, and the first release of FWSM was uh, version 1.1.1. And so for a while, they tried to stay pretty much in sync, so feature parity, uh, but it wasn't the same exact code base, meaning, as you know, the FWSM has uh, network processors, hardware-specific, you know, hardware-specific ASICs, which we download a lot of um, code to. And so the PICs didn't have that capability, so there was no way of keeping them 100% in sync. And so what they did is they actually created a, an abstraction layer um, called the soft NP or soft network processor, which 
the ASAs or the PICs have the soft NP and the FWSM has the hard NP or the hardware-based network processors. And this allowed the ASA code base and the FWSM code base to be 100% pretty much in sync with the exception of the hardware-specific code. Which is a really nice goal because then you code a feature once and it works multiple places. You right. fix a bug once, you fix multiple places. Absolutely. So the ASA, um, original ASA code, the 7.0 code, came from the FWSM code base, the the 2.2 yep. code base. Yeah, so we, we forked version 2.2.1 and branched it off, and that became ASA versions, uh, PIX version 7.0.1. Yep, 7, uh, yep, PIX and ASA 7.0.1. <coughs> so we're at version 7.0.1. I remember going to training for this. So some of the things that it brought us were um, really great, like uh, the true iOS parser that we imported um, from iOS. So now you have like things like context-sensitive help. What else uh, did 7.0.1 bring us? So it also brought us a file system, a yeah, true nice. file system, so that uh, we could actually do a directory listing and see um, the files in the fat file system. Prior to that, uh, in the PIX days, in the 6x days, and earlier, everything was a single file. So your PIX image, your PDM image, your config, um, any private keys you had were all stored in a single file with an offset from the beginning of that file. Um, as to where that specific file was. Yeah, that was annoying because you couldn't tell what the file was. You you just saw a blob. Show Flash is all you had. Yeah, you couldn't uh, you couldn't have more than one image on Flash, and you couldn't um, delete a file from Flash if you wanted to. And you there couldn't was no say way of doing that. You couldn't say multiple versions of your config either. Yeah, you couldn't do that. Either. So um, if you upgrade a PIX from version six to version seven, you can see the console going through this process of reformatting the Flash and doing some changes and stuff to get it. Um, with that real true file system. Another thing uh, version 7 brought us is multiple context mode, which is um, something we pulled, obviously, from the FWSM. Yep, the FWSM added to their code base, and because we were in sync, we inherited it in the PICs. And finally, for those of you who remember the VPN concentrators, uh, the VPN Altiga models, with that acquisition, Cisco merged some of that code base into uh, PICs version 701, so we got some of those um, advantages as well. So let's talk about uh, some of the hardware versions. So the PIX Classic, you know, we talked about the PIX Classic, PIX 10,000 as being these basically servers, right? These PC hardware. But one of my favorite firewalls is the PIX 501 because it's really, really small. It's about the size of, smaller than a, you know, a dinner plate. I don't know how big it is. Um, a couple of decks of cards. It doesn't have a fan. Um, and it's a rock solid little box that just goes on forever. Um, and it has a four port switch on the back. And your inside interface is connected to that, so you can have multiple devices connected, and then it's got an outside interface. Yeah, and it uh, won't run PIX version uh, 7X either. I know. Um, you know, we had a lot of customers complain that they couldn't upgrade to 7X on the 501 or 506, and, uh, you know, there's all these conspiracy theories about why we did that, right? But, you know, the real reason is it just doesn't have enough RAM and flash to effectively... Yeah effectively run it, right? There's not a whole lot we can I mean, do. even if you could get it to boot up, you wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't perform yeah, well at all. Right. Yep. But I still have a PIX 501 in my house. It's at the core <laughs> of my network, which feeds into an ASA, but you know, I love that thing. It's passing your traffic. It is. It's doing a fantastic job. So the PIX 515 and 515E and the 506 and 506E, what did the E actually, what did that mean? I mean, I, I know it means, I'm looking at the specs here, a little bit of higher CPU, but what What's it for? Yeah, so it really was just a designator so that we can, um, you know, indicate that the CPU, that there was a difference, okay. right? So, um, you know, the 515, we didn't want to completely renovate it. You know, wanted to keep it the same form factor and same performance characteristics. 
um, but you know the CPUs were were aging in them, and so the 506 and 515, we kind of just upgraded the CPUs in them and released them as the E model. So the Pix 501 had an AMD processor running at 133 megahertz. So <laughs> that's what's running in your house right now. That's right. Not bad. Uh, and doing mighty well, I might add. <laughs> and the Pix 535 had a and the Pix 535 had a Pentium 3 running at one gigahertz with a max of one gig of RAM and handled 500,000 connections. That's not bad. That's not bad, considering how old it is. Yeah. I'm sure we've got a lot of customers running 535s, you know, just fine now. That's right. So we've been talking about the PICs, and uh, just like all good things, uh, they must end. So PICs, when, when did we stop, when did Cisco stop selling the PICs, and how long can customers expect support on the PICs? Yeah, we stopped selling the PICs in July of uh, 2008, so it's been quite a while now since we um, stopped selling them. And, uh, you know, the, the software um, end of engineering support or software releases actually occurred a year after the end of sale. So it would have been July of 2009. And then tax support occurs for five years after end of sale. So technically we are still supporting the PICs um, to this day, which we're in, you know, 2012. So we will support the PICs until July of 2013. And we're happy to do so. We love... We are uh, happy to do so. We love those cases. We like, um, you know, pointing out to the new guys, hey, you, you know, there's a case here on a PIX 501, you want to check it out? And they look at you kind of blankly like, but uh, we do enjoy getting back on the CLI of those things. And they work great. I mean, they uh, do their jobs well. So we'll post on the show notes, we'll go down to the lab and we'll take pictures of the original old school, you know, PIX classic uh, local directors. And we'll, we'll post those uh, on the show notes page if you're interested in checking them out and seeing what they look like. So I also remember um, a story where, you know, about the time when I started, you know, IPsec's wasn't a standard um, and it hadn't been verified and there wasn't a lot of um, companies that had implemented IPsec, right? It was still in its infancy. And so they would have these interoperability tests where companies would come together with their different products and try to actually form IPsec tunnels with each other. And so I remember uh, one time my friend uh, Wynn, actually he was on uh, our last episode or a couple episodes ago, uh, he flew out with a developer to one of these interoperability tests and you know we hooked up with uh, a competitor who had an IPsec solution and we couldn't get it to work. Uh, the tunnel wouldn't come up between the two peers and so right there on the fly we you know, fixed the bugs and recoded part of the IPsec, both sides, both companies, in order to get the interoperability to work. And so we, you know, recoded a fix, built an image on the site, on the spot, and... Uh, there in some hotel somewhere? <laughs> in a hotel, you got it. Uh, built an image on the site, um, both companies did, and formed an IPsec peer, and voila, we had interoperability. Um, and so that's how, you know, back in the old days, that's how a lot of companies did things. To, to get interoperability, we would just code it on site, you know, on the fly. Man, you think of all the, like, well, I guess it was kind of the Wild West back then. It was there wasn't a lot West. of standards. <laughs> but you think about companies today with all their, like, patent wars and all this weird stuff happening, it's... Uh, nice to think that, you know, that happened. So we hope you enjoyed us uh, sitting around chatting about the history of the picks. Um, and if you have any uh, picks memories of your own or have some interesting stories about the picks, uh, let us know. Send it to securityshow at cisco.com. Uh, you can access all of our other episodes at www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast. You can find us on iTunes, and we look forward to hearing from you.